This episode is brought to you by Lambrequins Unlimited. When you need some drapery for the top of a window or door or the edge of your shelf, there's only one place to go for a Lambrequin provider that won't judge you or assume the worst. They know that lots of people require a heavy protective textile fabric or leather to wear over a medieval helmet. They have Lambrequins with every type of ornamental edge, dagged, slitted, or scalloped. Lambrequins Unlimited is open 24 hours a day for your convenience, day or night especially night. And now our listeners can order at their website to schedule a pickup of their own custom Lambrequin, gift-wrapped and soaking wet. Why? They don't ask. That's your business. Just use the promo code REREAD, one word. And thank you, Lambrequins Unlimited, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We're going to try to understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Yeah, we should have pinned that to the end of the intro. You can't spoil a Gene Wolfe story. A Gene Wolfe story barely spoils itself. <laughs> so there was a, a new Facebook group commenter, Michael Graylord. Great name. He, you know, he wanted to know if this podcast was okay for someone who had just finished Shadow of the Torturer. Only if you want someone telling you everything that's going to happen from that point on, mm-hmm. then yeah, we're a good podcast for that. And just a few minutes ago or a minute ago or something like that, you heard us say it's filled with spoilers. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But it was kind of cool. Other people jumped in. I have to say that was kind of fun. I was like, oh, we didn't even answer. Other people answered for us. That's kind of cool. Yeah. 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 I mean, anyway, I mean, I, you know, I can't say what's the whole point of this thing that we do, Craig, but for me, the point is to cast as wide a net as possible to finally leave this book utterly spoiled beyond repair. <laughs> that works for me. <laughs> anything anyone has ever said, anything that can help us along the way, any interview or scholarly article or speculation. For me, it was, you know, like I described on Facebook, that I read the book the first time and I had this feeling the whole time I was reading it, that someone was watching me from behind, you know, like Severian described in the atrium of time, but I turn around and no one was there. I don't know all the reasons people listen to us, Craig, but if you felt like that, this podcast is for you. This is the podcast for people who read the book of the new sun and say, what the heck? Yep. And I wanted it to be to something that wasn't just a sort of companion on your first read kind of thing. Like that's, it's fun to do that and read along with things that you like, but I really wanted it to be where, yeah, everything's on the table and we're not going to pretend like anything's new or we don't Mm -hmm. know what's coming up. Yeah, exactly. Just really look at the book as a whole. So in lieu of that endeavor, Philip Bonner reached out to us on Facebook about the puppet show in Severian's dream that he had in Baldander's bed. He says, 
So everyone makes the assumption of the puppet fight in the dream as an examination of the adversarial dynamic between Baldanders and Severian. But what if it's about something else? Voldless, we know, is of the wood. The figure who the marionette boy must fight is made of wood. I, you know, Craig, I do recall on the Earthless, one or two people made a connection between the man of wood and Voteless of the wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, you could connect the club with Voteless's cane. Still. Yeah, it's still hard because there's also never a, really a showdown. Like, it seems like the, mm. the puppet show is like, and I know whenever you hit some sort of weird dream logic or allegory type thing, it's hard to find what's the actual one-to-one thing. But it 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 just didn't strike me as Vodalus just because Vodalus, um, and I think I said this on the thread, that Vodalus never quite seems like an antagonist mm. to me, that he's more, I mean, we find out he's kind of a minor player in the long run just because he's being manipulated by the the autark and by the old autark at least the way i take it is he's being manipulated by the old autark and perhaps an eerie um, he's a puppet and yeah there's he's, a connection he's, there he's, there is it's true he is literally a puppet but yeah i mean even so it's not he's never presented as sort of an antagonist for yeah severian i mean if anything severian is not fighting him for most of the time it's only mm-hmm. towards the end where he realizes or, or starts to feel that he's not on Vodalus's side, that it takes him a long time to kind of get to And that he point. doesn't fight, he doesn't actually fight him. Not ever. He doesn't ever right. confront him. Right. He's not not even not even now. as a physical fight. He just never right. really confronts him. Right. Um, I mean, I know Vodalus does kind of have him, you know, in jail at one point, but it's never, it's, it's still a very different kind of situation. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would be the most ironic allegory that I can imagine for that puppet show. Yeah. All of the parts are there, but no one does what they're supposed to do. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, all that still to say the whole thing that he's voteless of the wood and that that guy is made of wood. Yeah. It's, it's an obvious line to think about. Right. Speaking of that dream on Reddit, Mike Farrar has been speculating about first Severian. No first ball danders. Look, see, if there was a first Severian whose timeline was different from ours, then there has to have been a first Baldanders, right? A Baldanders who grew up in a world without a conciliator, right? Yep. So Mike's story is that first Baldanders and first Severian battle and Baldanders wins. He kills first Severian and eventually becomes Autark, but he rejects the Autark's gift and the trip to Yassad, he forms a pack with the Megatherians and dominates Earth and the galaxy. He sits on his throne and despairs. Then he uses his technological knowledge to master time travel and go back in time and make sure he loses to Severian. Well, there are some problems with this, Mike. Severian says first Severian encountered the Autark by chance and became Autark and then sailed beyond the Candles of Light. But presumably there could be an infinite chain of Severians and Baldanders behind them. So maybe this could be how first Severian won. I don't know. The other thing I wonder is, and this is something I hadn't thought of before when I was reading the thread, but how technological Typhon is 
and that sense of doing all that you can to maintain immortality, that is a connection to Baldanders, and that fits the kind of Baldanders the king or Baldanders the tyrant story that he was kind of telling. There's maybe more of a little bit of a character or thematic connection there with uh, how Typhon and Baldanders might be similar. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that might be worth exploring in a good way. But um, it the problem with it, I think, is that it, it's a really cool... And, and by the way, kudos to him to for trying the logic of that as, as far right. as he could go. There's just not a whole lot of textual evidence for it, is, is the first thing I would say. And I just couldn't figure out... There's just not enough for me to know really which part to hang on to to suggest what it actually was. But if you're going to play that game, I think you should all go read his thread because it's a really well-done speculation yeah. of, of what that would be like. Right. So, yeah, and it makes definitely. a lot of sense to me. No, that's that's what you do. You follow the thread and then you see, you know, where it contradicts what you read in the text, if at all. So, yeah, w- well done. Well done. Also on Reddit, this has nothing to do with us, but Mike Farrar has a cool post with a big theory that the world of the Book of the Long Sun and Yesid are one and the same. Pretty cool. Check it out. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. We do kind of see a bit of mainframe in Yesid when Afeta sure. takes him underground. There is that whole that whole odd scene there. There's lots of yeah. There's lots. There's lots in there. That's what went. It's a big theory, which I really like. You have to have a big theory in order to pull all of these disparate threads into a single unified cloth. So yeah. Once again, I like it, Brett. Let's see. Loftiness. It must be loftiness. I like loftiness. Loftiness will work. Ooh, loftiness. Brett Loftiness reached out to us on Facebook to speculate about Nessus. He wants to talk about episode three, which is so great. He says, Buenos Aires translates as fair winds or good airs, with the name Nessus relating to the myth of poison centaur blood, which alludes to the poisoned river Guile, it seems very poetic that the city of good airs has degenerated into the city of bad waters. He also had some questions about the map of the Commonwealth in Lexicon Earthus, where the Guile flows into the western side of the continent. If Nessus is supposed to be Buenos Aires, as has been speculated, somewhere, I don't know where. Why would that be? Well, the Lexicon Earthus map was published in 1994, close to the time that you know I first encountered these books. But there was a previous map in the book Planet Engineering, published in 1984, pun on plant engineering, uh, an industry magazine that Wolf was the editor of at the time. And that map by Suford Lewis, quote, Drawn from Jean's notes also has the guile flowing into the east side of the continent. I put that map and the Lexicon Earthus map on Instagram. Just look for Rereading Wolf Podcast on Instagram. I can't remember if I mentioned this on the episode, but the reason I personally think the guile drains into the east side of the continent, not the west, as in those maps, is that in Citadel of the Autark, chapter 31, Malrubius drops Severian on a beach. He's walking towards the delta of the Guile, and Severian says, the old red sun rose on my right and touched the waves with his fading beauty. Well, if the sun is rising, 
then that's the east. And if it's touching the waters, that means east is the direction of the ocean. So the Gaio drains on the east side of the continent. That's what I think. Lexicon Earthus is indispensable for a fan of this book, and Suford Lewis's map is drawn from Gene's notes, as it says, but it looks to me like the Gaio empties into the east, just as with the river in Buenos Aires. Well, I'm thumbing through Earth of the New Sun, too, because I, and I could be totally wrong, but I thought that when Severian and Burgunda Fora land and they have to walk into Nessus, I thought that they, and I don't know why I had this assumption, that they, they landed somewhere in the east and are walking west and that they're, they're sort of, they're not directly following the river, but they end up, I, I don't know, I'm probably making this up, but I feel like Severian says there's a line somewhere where that they, he realized they were coming the same way as Nessus or something, or as the, as the river, but I could be totally wrong. And I can't find it. And this, this is yeah. totally the kind of thing that I would make up to rationalize my own assumptions about what I picture in my head. Severian is really bad at explaining directions. He does to say true. north and south. He doesn't ever say things like east, west. I mean, I'm not so great at figuring out from the text a map in my head. As anyone who has listened to the chapter 13 episode can tell. But Severian is really bad with maps. And so it's yeah. kind of a little out of character for him to even give directions. So I hope that if this, this conversation will disappear if it turns out that he's actually walking west when uh, <laughs> walking he and Burgon get, uh, get dropped off from a beach. Even then I could be totally wrong that he's not following the river at all. So yeah. No. Also, Brian Lieb reached out to us on email he wrote such an encouraging note. Thanks, Brian. I won't go through it all. It included his new son origin story. I love those. More of that. The important thing is he has theories regarding whether the atrium of time or the tunnels have anything to do with time travel. He sees them as, quote, a haven, a refuge carved out in Nessus for the benefit of those who returned from long near light speed relativistic travels off world. So he doesn't say this explicitly, but I'm extrapolating and summarizing, which makes me an unreliable narrator. He, I think he's saying <laughs> that the name atrium of time refers to the temporal displacement of the guests there during the period of interstellar travel. He says, I like that a lot. Oh, go ahead. I'll yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. I knew you would. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he says, quote, it makes sense to have such a haven for those returning who would share commonalities of experience, including the most relevant one of feeling cut off and isolated from the present day, culture, etc. By the significant passage of time, Valeria is the descendant of such a traveler whose people never left the atrium of time and are perhaps permitted as some sort of compensation to remain there. I would go further and say that it may be the haven for very special crew, descendant families who might also learn their jobs. So, you know, that might explain why Autark Severian is referred to by an antique designation at the end of Citadel of the Autark. Brian's understanding of the atrium doesn't require that it be related to time travel, and so it's, you know, unnecessary baggage for him. He even sees Valeria's statement about her family buttressing 
his understanding. Or as, as it says in chapter four, her family occupied these towers. They had waited at first to leave earth with the autark of their era, then had waited because there was nothing left for them but waiting. This is probably more in your court than mine, Craig, since you've always withheld an affirmation that the atrium of time <laughs> is any sort of temporal mechanism. <laughs> right. And I do like it a lot because it does then still give a weird backstory for Valeria without having to say that, yeah, she's the, that she actually is a time traveler or that Severian has done it. I mean, she very well could be, or her family could very well have been time traveling from a different place. And also that kind of makes sense then for why all the time stuff, like all the decorations, all the, mm -hmm. the sundials that are in there, because that's kind of the theme of the area. So I like that. Um, I just think it's a, it's a more elegant way and it keeps the strangeness of what's going on there um, without making it too strange, <laughs> maybe. But <laughs> I still think the thing though is, I mean, I, I still have to admit the fact that Severian can't find it from the air when he flies around in Citadel mm -hmm. makes me wonder if, yeah, it maybe really is some when else rather than somewhere. But I think that's a really elegant solution to, yeah. to why Valeria seems so strange still to Severian, but yeah, not necessarily put her in a different time. Yeah. And so, yeah, his, very, very creative, very thoughtful. Yeah. And his re his remark that, you know, because he doesn't need time travel to explain it, it, the idea of the atrium of time being a time traveling room or house doesn't really hold any value for him. I mean, for me, the atrium of time and the tunnels are so extricably tangled in my understanding of St. Catherine and Severian's mom, Catherine mm -hmm. and St. Gildas oh, yeah. and oh, the yeah. maid. But, you know, I, as, as you know, I can still appreciate a well-crafted theory. <laughs> yeah. So James, I have a question. Do you often enjoy breakfast in the company of a small corpse that has been killed overnight and left outside? Honestly, I've never tried it. Well, apparently <laughs> some people quite enjoy it. So maybe we should see why they do that. Doesn't spoil the ambiance at all. Chapter 16, The Rag Shop. Severian, after seeing what was left of the night in bed with Waldanders, checks out of his hotel room. I say checks out, but in fact, he did not really check in. The innkeeper let him sleep there because he intended to make Baldanders and Talos leave. They were two nights behind on their bill, and the innkeeper was naturally hesitant about confronting Baldanders, I suppose. But Talos has invited Severian to join them for breakfast. Talos believes that Severian is some kind of government spy trying to stay incognito by blending in with anti-government types. <laughs> anyway, that's what Talos says. If that's not true, hopefully we'll figure out what Talos really thinks about Severian. I mean, if Talos were right, he could have stayed incognito by taking off his Fulgen cloak. So Talos has decided to help him remain in disguise by writing a part for him in his play, which <laughs> means that Talos is not as anti-autarchy as he pretends. In what way is he pro-government and why? Let's see if we can find out. Uh, unless Talos is an idiot or crazy, <laughs> he can't believe a guy dressed as Severian is could have been trying to remain inconspicuous. Uh, 
I'm sure he's not an idiot. Okay. That's the information we have. What do you, what's going on here? Do you, do we believe his, do we, he gives an explanation in Claw when they get to House Absolute about what he believes. This is what he, I, what I've just described is what he says he believed and what he was doing. Do we believe him? He's not supposed to tell lies. Right. And yeah, I mean, the whole setup with Talus is just so strange because it's supposedly a random encounter, but then he's like, oh yeah, I'll rearrange my whole play to have you and this other eventually woman, you know, just hop in. They don't even know that they're going to arrive, but it's like just on cue, he shows up at the right part in the play. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot that's not being said. So Talus is lying by omission. Maybe so. <laughs> now, exactly why is a question. Yeah, I don't know. But actually, I mean, so all of that stuff about Talus and Baldanners, one thing when you're reading is that they are so weird and so distinct as characters that I feel like the first time or even the second or third time that you read this, you're still kind of distracted by their character as <laughs> to some other things that are going on in this chapter. Right. It's still early as Severian walks through the quote, living parts of Nessa for the very first time. He's grown up in the dying swamps of Nessus. The sun is up, but most people haven't gotten up yet. Severian says it is, quote, still slumbering. For the first time, he says, his grief, which was to obsess me so often, first gripped me with all its force. Until now, he's been distracted first by his betrayal of the guild and, he supposed, his impending execution, then the thrill of being out of the guild, which he had always hated. But, quote, now it seemed to me that there was no fact in all the world beyond the fact of Thecla's death. Each patch of darkness among the shadows reminded me of her hair. Every glint of white recalled her skin. I could hardly restrain myself from rushing back to the Citadel to see if she might not still be sitting in her cell, reading by the light of the silver lamp. So I like to think about how the chapters are put together and organized and how Wolf starts with certain things and then ends with other things. And this chapter begins with a paragraph where Severian is basically just going on about how he finally is feeling the weight of his grief for mm-hmm. Thecla and how everything is reminding him of her. You know, each patch of darkness among the shadows reminded me of her <laughs> hair. Every glint of white recalled her skin. Okay. Keep that in mind because in a minute, there's going to be some things that happen that seem like he pretty easily forgets all of this. So, yeah. so Wolf intentionally spends a lot of time on this, at the very beginning of this chapter, setting up Severian as a depressed, maudlin, sad, yeah, um, you know, grief filled, young man is this section with baldanders and talus is this are we supposed to read it as comic relief yeah i don't know because we've had a bit of them before right we've had talus hitting baldanders you know with his cane you know Mm -hmm. pretty close to slapstick as you're gonna get and then we're gonna come back to him in a minute and it's sort of like he will throws this one really depressing paragraph in here Mm-hmm. Um, well, I said depressing. It's almost more kind of like high school poetry kind of thing. Like everything right. reminds yeah. me. <laughs> Mr. Emo. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But then we are quickly going to go back to Talos basically seducing J- um, uh, Jolenta. 
Right. So I just wanted to point that out that the the first chapter that when we turn the page and and read this one is Severian as a very very moody person mm-hmm. and yet actually what happens through the rest of this chapter is all seductions of various sorts. Yeah. Right. But the three of them, Severian, Baldanders, and Talos come to a street cafe. As a reminder, this is the following day after Severian was exiled from the guild. 14 days since he was elevated to journeyman. 12 days since Thecla killed herself. As Severian and Baldanders sit at a table, there's the corpse of a murdered man at a street corner nearby. Severian postulates that he had been suffocated with a lambrequin. It is apparently, and randomly, a common method of silent murder in, <laughs> in Nessus. Yeah, of all the things that, that happen in this book, I still feel like this paragraph is one of the most surreal. <laughs> just yeah. because I don't know where it came from. I mean, I assume they're in a bad part of town, relatively. Um, but then to mention that, so a lambrequin, I guess we should, should say too, it can be like um, a couple things. It can be the sort of like the top decorative part of a curtain that mm-hmm. hangs in front of them, or it can be the cloth that hangs off and around a helmet. Right. Exactly. For like, if, for, if you imagine a, a medieval knight uh, riding along and he's got, and maybe some, some girl gives him a long piece of cloth to wear in his helmet. So it kind of flails behind him while he's riding. Right. Yeah. And so that's what he describes. And so I, we're, I'm not sure exactly which one it is. Um, but then the way he says it to a dead man, he had, I think, been suffocated with a lambrequin. There being <laughs> those who practice that art. <laughs> and I'm OK. Is it the murderers? The murdering? That's the art. Is this some kind of like honest? I was thinking, is this some kind of weird suffocation fetish? I don't know. But because he describes it as an art. So I, right. this is one of those places where I feel like I'm just, I'm just missing something. Never <laughs> mentioned again, as far as I know. Yeah. We don't come upon a, a gang of Lambrequin assassins or anything. It's <laughs> the doily murderers. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess they, they come up behind them and they drape it over their face and smother them. I guess I, I always wondered if this tactic were some sort of literary reference, but I've got nothing. Yeah. So this one, this one I've looked through things and unless I'm, I'm missing something in earth list and on Reddit, I, I don't know, especially what's weird too, is that nobody seems to really care. Says Talos went through his pockets, <laughs> but came back with empty hands. Yeah. Apparently he was murdered and robbed. Or he was murdered right? and somebody else robbed him before Talos gave him. And then this whole next little scene happens on an outdoor cafe right and right. the guy's still lying there on the corner <laughs> yeah well that i mean that's a little bit of local color but that's a lot there's so much detail in this little bit of he could have just said uh, there was a corpse of a man who'd been murdered the night before mm-hmm. uh, you know within eyesight no 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 that's not enough he has to have been uh, executed with this elaborate system of <laughs> smothering it's yeah. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, if we're going to think in terms of world building, like the effect of it is that Nessus is a dangerous place. There's sort of mm-hmm. crazy stuff going all around. And a lot of that really dark stuff 
apparently isn't really outlandish. Like this doesn't stop their day, right? Finding right. a corpse no, no. in the street does not interrupt their breakfast. <laughs> no, Talos hoped it was going to pay for their breakfast. Right. So. Yeah. Um, so that tells you quite a bit, I think, about what Nessus is supposed to be like and, and how partly jaded the people are, mm-hmm. I suppose, um, but also how totally dangerous it is. To, to violent death yeah. going on around them. Yeah. So I don't know that there's necessarily supposed to be an explanation, but rather the fact likely that it's presented so matter-of-factly is what you're supposed to pick up on. Nonetheless. <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> well, well, if you want to understand Talos and Baldanders, that this whole scene is to be taken as a kind of uh, comic relief, then that is probably the best evidence you have right there. It also is a good moment to think about how Baldanders and Talos treat other people, right? Mm -hmm. Like once we find out about them later in S.W.O.R.D., they're doing experiments on local children, right? Right. I mean, and and it's all just presented just as matter-of-factly as this. Exactly. And also that we have Dr. Talos who, you know, doesn't check his pulse or say anything, (laughs) you know, about why he might be killed. He just checks his pockets. No, no, because Bald Andrews is his only patient. His only patient. Right. Yeah. So Talos says, now then, we must think, we must contrive a plan. Uh, (laughs) Okay. A waitress whose name we eventually learn is Jalinta brings them mugs of mocha. The only description we have of her is that she's young, skinny, with straggling hair. Bald Anders pushes one of the mugs to Talos, which is bizarre. Because although it might not be obvious to a first-time reader that Talos is, doesn't need to eat, Bald Anders knows he doesn't. This subtle little act demonstrates that Bald Anders is actively working to maintain the facade that Talos is human. Right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that he's still just so sleepy that he doesn't know what he's doing, but I feel like it's, it is intentionally part of the disguise. It's like he's saying, Hey, Talos, I brought you that prop for a reason. Mm -hmm. They have limited funds, but he spends it on Talos to order food that he will never eat and pushes him to act the part when he perceives that his homunculus Butler is doing it inadequately. This makes me wonder how much independence Talos has in anything that he does. Talos stirs the mocha with his index finger and explains his situation. Remember that Talos goes by the title doctor. He says that Bald Anders is his only patient, as we said. So this misapprehension that Talos is a learned doctor and that he is the master or physician to Bald Anders is not just Severian's naivety. It's a ruse they are actively maintaining. Yeah. They come from the shores of Lake Diaterna. I think we've discussed in the past that the term Diaterna is Italian for long-lasting. It's derived from a word meaning continually or literally all day. And again, if we're assuming that this is Argentina, then it is probably Lake Titicaca. There are lots of signals associated with Lake Titicaca, and at some point we're going to have to go through them in detail. There is, however, an Isla del Sol, Island of the Sun, on the southern side of that lake. And Thekka fantasized about going there and building a house. Incidentally, since I tend to see revolutionaries under every bed, I'll point out that Lake Diaterna is on the northernmost point of the Commonwealth. So if you're 
an Erebus sympathizer, uh, Dampo, as I call them, <laughs> then L- Lake Deuterna is a convenient location to maintain close proximity with Askia or Ashea, how, whatever, the country in the shadow of Erebus. That said, I used to think Baldanders was working in the service of Abia, and as we talked last chapter about how I used to think the dream Severian got was meant for Baldanders, but I don't think that anymore. And I doubt he's working for Abia. I lean more toward that, you know, he doesn't care at all for politics. Baldanders is in it for Baldanders. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Baldanders Castle was burned down. Uh, maybe it's been five years since this happened, which suggests Talos and Baldanders have been touring for a while now, only traveling south down the east side of the Gile, and then they would head north to on the west side of the Gile. They still don't have nearly enough. In sort of the Lictor, Severian will get the story from one of the people who live on Lake Deaterna. And by that, I don't mean by the lake, I mean on the lake. He says that Baldanders came from somewhere in the Commonwealth south of Lake Deaterna. He bartered with the lake tribes and shore tribes to build his castle. He gave them tools to build his castle, and in payment, they got to keep the tools. The fellow who tells this story was an old man, and he said it happened in the time of his father and grandfather. So, you know, maybe a century earlier. And all this... We should say all this backstory is in sort. Exactly. Right here, we don't know anything. We're just, just. No, no. Yeah. And at the time, Bald Anders was a short man. He remained a short man until, I don't know, hard to say, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. The old man told Severian he saw him once and he was described as not even being as tall as Severian's shoulders. So right. now Severian is tall, but we assume Severian is, say, 6'2. So Bald Anders was under 5'5 five five or even less. It was a fortress tower with an outer wall. And when the outer wall was finished, the shore tribes started having their children and animals stolen. And they guessed who was doing it. For decades, their solution was to steal people and animals from the lake tribes and chain them outside the doors of Baldander's castle to take instead, or chain them to his gates. But eventually the shore tribes attacked the tower, burned it down, killed whatever servants Baldander's had there. So anyway, yeah, just a, I love that story too because it's like this awful, unimaginable thing was happening to us. So to prevent it, we did some awful, unimaginable <laughs> yeah. thing to other people. Yeah, yeah, totally justified. <laughs> so anyway, there, Bald Anders and Talos's show consists of Talos gathering a crowd who would watch Bald Anders break beams and lift ten men, and he sells you know curios. He sells cures. Uh, he's a snake oil salesman. And that's which is why he goes around calling himself Dr. Talos, I assume. And he's got a play. Now, he doesn't say he wrote it, but he's capable of modifying it, at least. It involves audience participation. He invites Severian to join them since he's obviously short of money. Now, Bald Anders finally responds to Talos' statement about the burned house. It's not entirely destroyed. The walls are stone, very thick. Some of the vaults escaped. So, yeah. So, so once again, we have this thing happening from last chapter where he answers everything late. Yeah. So I want to talk about just, first of all, the general trope of the, uh, like a traveling drama show, because there there indeed were things like this. Um, and I think if you've ever seen, well, you know, for our crowd, you know, if you've read uh, Neil Gaiman's The One Issue of Sandman, where uh, Shakespeare has to write a play for the fairies, 
that's one where you see something like this. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. That Mm -hmm. play is one where that happens. And one thing that's sort of interesting about the whole trope of the whenever people in, you know, in fantasy books or you see it on TV, whenever there's this like traveling actors group, they always seem to have some mysterious quality about them that they're able to show you the truth in some weird way, right? Like they have some extra insight into what's going on wherever they travel. And it's almost presented as a mystical thing. And I feel like that's one of the tropes that maybe you're kind of set up to think these guys are going to do. And in a way they do. I mean, the play does actually say a lot of things that, that come to be true, but then we find out that the actual people (laughs) involved here are nothing like the sort of mysterious soothsayers of, you know, wandering actors that I, I think you'll see in a lot of, a lot of stories. So it's a fun way to, to take that, idea and mix it up a lot oh and the seventh yeah. seal that's the other one i was thinking i'm like there's another one that's on the tip oh, of my yeah. tongue but seventh seal where you've got the the traveling in that case are they gypsies in seventh seal or are they just traveling actors i think you know, they're just traveling I, actors. I, I, I all i was I, I was doing my best to read the subtitles so oh <laughs> uh, let's just talk about these two baldanders made talos and talos says baldanders wisely made me all that he is not, so that I might counterweight his deficiencies. I'm not fond of money, for example, and that's an excellent thing to have in a personal physician. And I am loyal to my friends because he is the first of them, which means, of course, that Bald Andrews is always worried about money and he is not very loyal. So we can, from that, extrapolate that Bald Andrews tends to tip toward greedy and he's <laughs> also not a particularly reliable ally which is a problem for both the heroes and the Megatherians. It also demonstrates the way Talos sees Jolenta. Right. Jolenta, the waitress, comes to the table. A bowl of gruel for Baldanders, bread and fruit for Severian, and a pastry for Talos. He's still maintaining that ruse. Dr. Talos says, What an attractive girl. Can you sit down? We're your only customers. She sits. And Talos gives her his pastry and mocha. If you don't object to drinking after me, but of course he hasn't had any, but he has Mm -hmm. put his finger in it. (laughs) She doesn't get free food at this cafe or even a discount. So she's grateful. She works for tips and that's all. She's been there about a month. Ah, you're not the owner's daughter then. I feared you were or his wife. How can he have allowed such a blossom to flourish unplucked? And I think it's just funny too that one thing he says there's oh you're not you're not the owner's child because right. what have they done in <laughs> Lake Diaturna? They steal the children, and the problem is then that the fathers <laughs> rebel and burn yeah. your castle down. Yeah, he's looking in this case because of what he plans for her. He's looking for an unconnected oh, yeah. female who doesn't have familial connections. And so in lieu of the tip, he offers her a, quote, a rich gift. We get, again, a comparison to Talos as looking like a fox here with his bristling reddish eyebrows and sharp nose. But Severian specifies that he looks like a stuffed fox. Uh, perhaps this is a hint that he's artificial. Yeah. If you're a first time reader, you might not have been expected to pick up on this. You know, what was with the fox? Uh, Michael Andre Drisi suggests that this is a Pinocchio reference with the fox. 
And, and that does make sense. Wolf hmm. does yeah. like Pinocchio. There aren't a lot of straight up Pinocchio references as there are in, say, the book of the short son. I, I wonder if his looking like a stuffed fox, a fox's head mounted on a wall is a reflection to his backstory that maybe murder was involved in his making. I'll give another evidence of this. In his description of Talus's seduction of Jalinta and his looking like a dead stuffed fox, Severian goes into a very curious aside, I think. I have heard those who dig for their livelihood say there is no land anywhere in which they can trench without turning up the shards of the past. No matter where the spade turns the soil, it uncovers broken pavements and corroding metal. And scholars write that the kind of sand that artists call polychrome, because flecks of every color are mixed with its whiteness, is actually not sand at all, but glass of the past, now pounded to powder by eons of tumbling in the clamorous sea. If there are layers of reality beneath the reality we see, even as there are layers of history beneath the ground we walk on, then in one of those more profound realities, Dr. Talus's face was a fox's mask on a wall. And I marveled to see it turn and bend now toward the woman, achieving by those motions, which made expression and thought appear to play across it with the shadows of the nose and brow, an amazing, realistic appearance of vivacity. So what are we supposed to pick up from this? Yeah, and it's first of all, it's just a really cool set of sort of asides too or like i still love that it's world, world building is great right oh yeah That's what everyone picks up on. yeah i love the description of polychrome right exactly features of special polychrome glass uh you know sand yeah amazing and it's not exactly a giveaway but the end of that last sentence there that he's like his expression and thought were an amazing and realistic appearance of vivacity which literally says he only looked like he was actually alive Right. I mean, vivacity being, mm-hmm. I mean, can be yes. motion and activity, but also can just be a livingness. <laughs> but in some ways, you know, I don't know if it's a giveaway or a clue, but it's certainly a long digression in the middle of otherwise just a, a little weird scene where we're trying to figure out what he's doing. But he um, could have said, he could have said that Talos is like a mask on a wall or yep. a mannequin or, you know, so many things. But no, no. In some, other reality, Talos is a fox's mask on the wall. And I just think that's, I, I don't know the answer to that. But yeah, are you, that point about, you know, in other realities. Um, yes. Yeah, that's that's one, one of those places where we can think is, okay, is there a way that we should be thinking literally about that? I have to admit, even even now, I still feel like that's just a way of, of talking about how similar it was. Um, but I'm not, I'm not wedded to that necessarily, but if nothing else, I feel like what he's just really hammering home the sense of artificiality Artific- yeah. about Talos. But I like that there's sort of a mix of different ways. Like he never settles on one exact thing. Like he says the last part, it could be a mask hanging on the wall. 
It could be a stuffed fox, which used to be a real fox, but now is, you know, an emptied shell of the fox. Well, that's a little different from a mask. And then it was also the idea that here was a guy who looked like a fox. So you've got sort of three different ways that he's not a real person, which I think is. Also that he's an artifact from ancient times. From ancient history. Yeah. Yep. That's the other thing that, that creeps in there. Uh, because otherwise it's almost like that's a long-winded way for Severian to say like he was so close that maybe in another life he would be like this but instead he talks about you know layers and layers of history Mm -hmm. and different realities um, that yeah make make Talos seem like yeah he could honestly he could well be some kind of artifact from an earlier time yeah well we know that it's implied that Baldanders makes him but maybe the raw materials come from a an ancient age. You know, um, Humunculus, you assume maybe knowing as bald Andrews as we do, that it's entirely possible, you know, he he used human parts and human body. I don't know, maybe he's, you know, maybe Especially the stuffed fox. Yeah, especially the idea of a stuffed fox, right? That, uh, yeah. that could well suggest the, the more Frankenstein kind of thing. The other thing too is that when we do actually meet robots later on, like Jonas, Severian is fooled or not fooled, but it's, it, he doesn't even guess until long after. Yeah. The Jonas was half robot. For right. Example. Yeah. And here though, he's picking up on it immediately, which I've never wondered. I've always wondered what that suggests. Like Talos certainly passes for a man to, I think everyone. And there's never in, well, I mean, let me say this like what is the role of androids or whatever in in this world like are they common severian certainly seems to think that jonas is something amazing yeah i don't think that they're common in nessus i don't right. see them much you know they're so when once you get to the the forces the military forces that are closest to the autark mm-hmm. in in citadel you see some really weird thing. I don't see mm-hmm. anything that suggests necessarily that they are, you know, androids, yeah. robots, androids. humunculuses. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I don't know how all of this. Right. Cause right. we see the big, they're the big walking statues that he'll, he describes the giant yes. statues. Um, but those are obviously not trying to mimic human beings because he talks about them being all white and, and, you know, mm-hmm. very much, artificial but in this case though yeah baldanders has made something that gives its nature away i think first of all yeah this is this is wolf playing the clue game with you to say can you figure out what's going on here early but i think also it makes me wonder if it sings that baldanders may just not be as perfect a craftsman as he might think he is in other words all these wonders that baldanders can make like make himself large and whatnot there's there's always something wrong with it and with talus it's that you know if you've got someone who's sly and sneaky and you can tell that he's sly and sneaky like a fox then i mean even though he works with jolenta here severian also picks up from the beginning that something's weird and you know the same kind of thing with baldanders he's growing he's getting big but he's got to sleep a lot he had to make a helper to keep him around so for all of baldanders wonders he's not like a perfect scientist and that's one thing i kind of kept in mind that even though talus is super super smart and does all the things i i always see him as a slightly broken creation yeah and i feel like that passage it really kind of brings that home 
Well, I do have a curiositus earthus for Talos and his foxiness. Curiositas Earthus. So this one came out on the Earthless during a period of especially heightened activity and was so subquoted in the responses that it was hard to even find the original reference. And this Curiositas Earthus is actually two different, really good posts. The first by, we don't normally name authors of Curiositas Earthuses, but in this case, I think it's safe. It's Lee Berman who has also commented on the Facebook group and he and on Reddit and on the, it was so active on the Earthless with some really great theories. So he draws a connection between Talos and his foxiness to Dionysus. He had previously laid out a compelling connection between Father Aniri and Pan. Of course, Dionysus is a literary pivot in the dialogue in the Book of the Short Sun. I've identified Patera Quetzal with Dionysus in the Book of the Long Sun. Let's face it, Wolf does like Dionysus. Lee connects him to others, including Father Aniri. It's a really, really good post, right up my alley. In fact, I think I'm in the threads of this discussion. Not only does he connect Talus to Dionysus, but he goes off in a very apt, what's the heck with Talos tear? Quote, the Thracian worship of Dionysus involved casting him as Dionysus Bessarius or Dionysus the Fox. The Bacchlianalic revelers in that case tended to wear fox skins in contrast to the pan faunus goat skins worn by other Mediterranean Dionysus worshippers. We're told Talos is fox-like and that he is a homunculus grown created by Baldanders, but obviously Baldanders didn't use his own DNA to create him. What was the source of the material, and why does a doctor know so much about Commonwealth politics, mythology, eschatology, and genesis, and cosmic history, not to mention Severian's mother? Uh, he he connects uh, the character from Talos's play, Katerina, with uh, Catherine. Then in a separate thread, I, I was so intrigued by that recently, I had to go to the, the Gene Wolf Appreciation Society Facebook page and say, Lee, tell me about this. <laughs> then in a separate thread, a month later, David Stockhoff notes regarding Dionysus that his festivals were the driving force behind the development of Greek theater. Just to stir the pot, I'll note that Dionysus was also known as Twice Born, which might be applicable to a homunculus. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'll put a link to, to both of these posts and uh, check them out because they're really cool. And the Dionysus certainly works if we're thinking about Dionysus being, I mean, I guess the one thing that would be harder is the, the whole intoxication thing, Dionysus, god of wine, but but that sort of god of, you know, chaos and... and... Ecstasy and, mm -hmm. well, there's just so, gosh, there's so, there's so many angles to Dionysus. C.S. Lewis was intrigued with Dionysus. I think Chesterton had kind of a soft spot for Dionysus. And Nietzsche, Nietzsche was always called himself like the prophet yeah. or something of Dionysus. But 
that's also why I usually think of Dionysus as part of a pair, because for Nietzsche, there was sort of this force of a, a kind of ongoing conflict between Apollo and Dionysus in uh, Greek way of thinking right. and in tragedy. So I'm sitting here thinking, well, who, who would be, I mean, who's the Apollo? I guess Severian would be the Apollo. I mean, the sun is certainly possible, but he and Talos, yeah, Baldanders and Talos, they're not the, the primary well, that would make, well, that would make Baldanders Salinas, I guess. <laughs> Could so. be. Could be. Yeah. Anyway, but I like I like the idea. There's certainly, I mean, the whole thing about the fox, Dionysus and the fox skins, which was actually new to me. So I think that's yeah. Really cool. Yeah, no, no, it's so apt. Really cool. So anyway, uh Jolinta is confused by Talos's offer of a gift. She notes Severian is a carnifex. Are you talking about the gift of death? Then she offers a flowery way of saying that she'll call a cop. She says, the autarch whose pores outshine the stars themselves protects the lives of his subjects. Uh, I'll note that she's saying this with a dead body, not feet away. (laughs) Talos says, the gift of death? Oh, no. No, my dear. You've had that all your life. So has he. We wouldn't pretend to give you what is already yours. This mirrors something that Dorcas will say to Severian when she realizes that she was dead and had been Mm -hmm. resurrected. Severian says, you think what is wrong with you is contagious then? And she laughs and says, yes, but you have it already. You caught it from your mother. Death. But Talos says the gift he offers is beauty with the fame and wealth that derive from it, which, by the way, is also death, ultimately, it turns out. But, you know, never mind. Jolinta says, if you're selling something, I haven't got any money. Selling? Not at all. Quite the contrary. We are offering you new employment. I am a thaumaturge, and these optimates are actors. Have you never wanted to go on the stage? And she she responds, I thought you looked funny, the three of you. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of Pinocchio, I'm reminded of what Jiminy Cricket said in the Disney movie. What's an actor need with a conscience anyway? <laughs> yeah, and honestly, this whole that whole scene right here just totally it I hadn't really thought of Pinocchio before, but yeah, getting someone to go on stage and making you mm-hmm. I'm gonna make you look like a real boy. You know, in this case I'm gonna make you look like a real woman. Yeah, it turned didn't turn out good for Pinocchio either. So. A thaumaturge is a miracle worker. Literally it means wonder worker. It can also mean an illusionist or a sorcerer, but a miracle worker who hangs out with actors is more likely to be a fraud, I'd think. Talos says, we stand in need of an ingenue. You may claim the position if you wish, but you must come with us now. We've no time to waste and we won't come this way again. An ingenue, of course, is a type of actress who plays the innocent, the naive, the wholesome young woman. She's the one who will always be imperiled and tied to a railroad tracks. This should have been a warning, but you know, there are thousands of young women (laughs) lining up to take up that role, you know? So she says, becoming an actress won't make me beautiful. And Talos says, I will make you beautiful because we require you as an actress. It is one of my powers now or not at all. Will you come? She wants to get her stuff from her room, but Talos says she probably only owns trash. 
I must cast the glamour and teach you your lines all in a day. I will not wait. Italy, this all reminds me very much of the beginning of An Evil Guest with Gideon Chase and Cassie Casey. Mm, yeah. She says, uh, give me money for your breakfasts and I'll tell him I'm leaving. Nonsense! As a member of our company, you must assist in conserving the funds we will require for your costumes. Not to mention you ate my pastry. Pay for it yourself. <laughs> so is the whole thing here, the whole sort of push to get her to come right now, right this second, is that just part of the con and the seduction? Just like force her to make a snap decision and if she you know, takes even half a second. She's not going to do it. Yes. Yes, definitely. It is. This is part of what you do. If you want to make a, a pressure sale is to say it has to be right now. Mm-hmm. Anyone who stops to think about it is going to turn it down. She's going to start thinking that Talos and Baldanders look kind of fishy yeah. and maybe it's a risk, but you know, she has to make a decision right now. Also, you know, if they leave right now, they can dine and dash. So true, true enough. She looks at Baldanders for confirmation, and Baldanders says, You may trust him. The doctor has his own way of looking at the world, but he lies less than people believe. Which is such a cool way to phrase it. And by the way, I think we said before that we he said that Talos doesn't lie, but he lies less than people believe. Yeah. Which is so cool. <laughs> Considering what is going to happen to her, this is the most sinister lie of all, I think. Talos, who lies less than people believe, didn't say, Trust me, it is Baldanders who says, trust him. Mm-hmm. So, Jolenta agrees. Quickly, they are all several streets away. Uh, most of the shops are still closed. But just like uh, Cassie Casey in An Evil Guest, when the wizard is done with the use of the subject, she's burned out. Her beauty is gone and spent. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Cassie Casey doesn't die, but, you know, Well, who knows, really? Talos says it's time for them to separate. He has to go make Jalinta pretty. Boldanders has to retrieve the collapsing uh, proscenium and other properties from the end. He says, I trust that will present no difficulties. That is, the innkeeper isn't going to try to keep their stuff from him because, you know, he's giant. Yeah, he's big. A proscenium is a kind of collapsible stage. It's interesting that Talos seems to have all the materials to perform the complicated act of applying Jalenta's glamour. Perhaps the materials are actually easy to steal or scavenge. He tells Severian to meet them at Tessafon's Cross. Now, in Michael Andre Drizzi's new book, I've learned that Tessafon is the name of the city where the Muslims took the true cross when Jerusalem fell to them in 614. The true cross is, you know, the relic that's supposedly the actual cross that Christ was crucified on. It was recovered 13 years later, but Tessaphon's cross refers to the true cross. I'm not sure how this location is supposed to be apt. I'll have to think about that when we go through the play they perform there. Incidentally, St. Tessaphon was venerated in Spain. He was supposedly a first century missionary to Spain. Actually, it's kind of fun that the the first thing that comes to mind for me is that it's just another moment where Wolf is kind of saying, you know, there are are fragments of various pieces Mm -hmm. of literature and religions or, you know, depending on your your beliefs, the actual truth there. And that here the term is for um, Tessaphon's cross, which would be 
like you said, the real cross. Right. Whereas all it is here is, you know, where some roads. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so it's there, but it's in such a, just like the Brown book, it's something that you can kind of recognize, but it's in a totally different form. Right. Talos asks Severian if he knows where Tessafon's cross is. Severian says, yes, actually he doesn't, but he has no intention of ever seeing these two clowns again. Talos walks away, quick-stepping. Jolinta jogs behind him. That's kind of a comical picture there as well. It's also kind of a, a thing forward to where Jolinta says she can't run. Yeah. Or, you know, she, this is well, the later, last time we Well, later she really see won't here. be able to, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. He asks Baldanders where he's going next just to make small talk and to get him to move along. Baldanders is going to a park near Guile to take a nap until dusk, and then he'll get up and he'll go get their stuff from the inn. Okay, Severian says, I'm going to go look around the city. Goodbye. And Severian has a sense that Baldanders knows Severian doesn't intend to meet them. Baldanders goes east to the river. Talos and Jolenta went west. Severian goes north because that's the direction of Thrax. And one thing too, the the paragraph where he says what direction they're going, Baldanders gets his own comparison to an animal as well, except this time it's that his eyes were as dull as an ox. Right. Yeah. So interesting that Severian picks up on Talos being fake, but doesn't pick up on Baldanders being more real. Um, and in fact, the, the comparison he makes here is just to a laboring animal. Um, right. And turned away to lumber with long steps. Um, you know, he's <laughs> but he just, does seem to pick up that he's not entirely dim. He, he seems to have a sense that Baldanders is on to him about his intentions. Yeah, which is, that's a good point. Cause he says that for some reason I felt he knew what was in my mind. Uh, but then the next sentence is, but his eyes were dull as an ox. Right. So yeah, he's still, still confused there. Yeah. So Severian, of course, is headed to Thrax called the city of windowless rooms. Nessus is called the city imperishable. There are raised paths in the road for northbound and southbound traffic. There's a third path between them, and I, I assume that it's significantly narrower to divide them. Quote, to the left and right, buildings seem to spring from the ground like grain too closely planted, shouldering one another for a place. And what buildings they were, nothing so large as the Great Keep and nothing so old, none, I think, with walls like the metal walls of our tower, five paces through. One question about that. Does that mean that the walls were five paces thick? Yes, I think that it's saying that the walls of the Manichin are five paces thick. That's incredibly thick. I mean, we're now talking about like, you know, rocket ships that are. Which we get. This is, it's a much, that, it implies a much bigger ship. Than we may. We I always assume, you know, a tower like yeah, mm -hmm. a tower. But this would suggest a very thick tower and mm -hmm. a very thick rocket ship. And so something that doesn't really require needing to be very light in order to take off. Honestly, I gotta tell you, reading this now, I've always kind of had in my mind a rocket ship. Mm -hmm. And then around it, they put stone masonry or something like that. So it looks ah, like a tower. Yeah. But no, no, that's not it. Severian is, says these are, it, the walls are metal and they're very thick. 
I don't know, five paces. Typically that's like three feet. So that would be, if that's true, it would be 15 feet. It might be that he means five feet. Yeah. That's why I was thinking like 15 feet thick walls that, that if that is what he meant, then it gives a totally different scale. Right. I think thinking before. Yeah. I don't know. Well, let's go on. Let's go on. He <laughs> says, <laughs> he says, yet the Citadel had nothing to compare with them in color or originality of conception. Nothing so novel and fantastic as each of these structures was, though each stood among a hundred others. As is the fashion in some parts of the city, most of these buildings had shops in their lower levels, though they had not been built for the shops, but as guild halls, basilicas, arenas, conservatories, treasuries, oratories, martellos, asylums, manufactories, conventicles, hospices, lazarets, mills, refractories, deadhouses, abattoirs, and playhouses. Their architecture reflected these functions and a thousand conflicting tastes. So the, all of these buildings have been repurposed more yeah. than once probably it's also the, a cool sentence <laughs> where he gives <laughs> that massive list i mean it just it sticks out right i mean just yeah. any kind of weird list like that is going to stick out but it's just i would forget where exactly i was reading it but someone somewhere on earth was talking about <laughs> somewhere on earth somewhere on the earth list <laughs> uh, was talking about places where the style of this is so much more like proust and proust is kind of some of his sentences will just have this meandering quality and this one i would think if i'm going to have this massive list of things that you know i would probably put the focus of the sentence on like there were guild halls blah 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 but instead it's so cool it's like as is in the fashion of some parts of the city most of these buildings had shops in their lower levels though they hadn't been built for the shops but as and then it goes off like that like the main i know this is getting very down to the sentence level but where the whole point of the sentence starts off seeming not at all to be about you know, the obvious standout thing, but it's just so kind of Baroque. It's just such a weird Mm -hmm. detailed way to write that is yeah, meandering and confused and not to the point. (laughs) Um, And the the reason I like it so much is that it totally is what Nessus is like of something that started with one purpose and then ended up having this sort of slipshod, just accumulation of stuff afterwards. And it's also very pleasurable to read. Yeah. It reminds me of some of the uh, paragraphs in the Master of the Curators, chapter six, when he's going through the library and he's talking about all the different kinds of bindings and all the different types of, of books. Yeah. Yeah. And he keeps doing more. He's like the, when he says the architecture reflected their functions and a thousand conflicting tastes. And then he gives another list. Um, this time of, you know, of, of what the things are doing. Turrets and minarets bristled, lanterns, domes, and rotundas soothed, flights of steps as steep as ladders ascended sheer walls, and balconies wrapped facades and sheltered them in the par- parterre, I'm not sure, parterre of privacies of citrons and pomegranates. Well, a parterre is an ornamental flower garden. Okay, thank you. But yeah, so... And it's just cool because here the the crazy architecture is doing its own thing. That it's yeah. not just sitting there. It's actually moving and alive, even if it's all, you know, just a jumbled mass of things. Oh, he goes on about, he says, the buildings are pink and white marble, red sardonyx, 
blue, gray, and cream, and black bricks, and green, and yellow, and Tyrian tiles, Tyrian type of blue. Uh, then he sees a lansquinet guarding the entrance to a casern. A lansquinet is a pikeman. A casern is a military barracks. This reminds him that he was supposed to get alternate clothes rather than walk around in his guild uniform. That's what he was told by the Lokaj when he was crossing the bridge. So that, yeah, that was the first thing he was supposed to do. He's supposed to go get some other alternate clothes at, uh, so he's not walking around as a car effects and to find a place to sleep, both of which he's failed to do. So he has three Asimis and some change, and he figures that's all he's going to have until he gets to Thrax. He decides that since he doesn't have much money, all he needs to do is buy a huge, cheap mantle, big length of cloth to cover him with. And the clothing shops are just starting to open, but none of them have, you know, what he's looking for, or they charge too much. And eventually he realizes that he can get work as a Carnifax on his way to Thrax, but he hasn't thought of that yet. Actually, he's not sure if he thought of it. He might have thought of it and said, who's going to need a torturer in Nephthys? Yeah. So he passes by the places that are selling expensive fabrics like Balmacons, that's a cape with sleeves, or surtouts. Is that pronounced right? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's a type of overcoat. Or dolmens, a type of robe. And jerkins of patasoy matelace. Uh, I don't know. Jerkin is a close-fitting hip-link jacket without sleeves or collars. Patasoy is a silk-corded material. Uh, matelace is uh, like a quilted pattern. So I have a feeling that some of the people who got really irritated with Wolf's vocabulary just absolutely hate this chapter. Um, but it's, but it's so beautiful. It's, it's so fun. And yeah. I also feel like, again, it's just perfect for Nessus because what he's doing is sort of just crowding on things that, you know, except for geeks like us at this point, you know, no one's going to go look up all of these words right now. And instead uh -huh. what's going to happen is it's going to kind of wash over you and you're going to sort of lose your focus on exactly what it is that, you know, makes this place up. And that's totally what Nessus is like. Yeah. It's a like. strange becomes just a strange world that you wander exactly. through and you don't know what they are. Even so occasional familiar things pop up, but then it's just sort of back to strange and alien all the time. And it's just, uh, I mean, Talk about Wolf as a as a stylist. I mean, it's just a really cool way to create the same effect that you're describing. Right. He goes by shops selling military supplies like red forage caps. A forage cap is like the soft caps you see people in the military wear, the little square shaped thing. Or long shafted kettens, uh, which is a battle axe. He briefly considers the appeal of joining the military, which is some foreshadowing. And when he's completely forgotten about searching for essentially a blanket to cover himself, a, quote, slender woman of 20 or a little more comes out of a shop and starts opening it up. This is, as we know, Asia. She's wearing a brocade gown with some kind of peacock feather pattern. The word is a pavanine. It was a gown of, quote, amazing richness and raggedness. 
There's a tear in the gown just below her waist. The light shining on it turns the skin that you can see to the palest gold. And much as it was with Thecla, when Severian was struck with immediate desire, this is the first time among many that Severian will compile comparative lists of all the women that he's loved before. He says, I cannot explain the desire I felt for her, then and afterward. Of the many women I have known, she was, perhaps, the least beautiful, less graceful than the woman I have loved most, less voluptuous than another, less regional far than Thecla. That's interesting. She was mm-hmm. yeah. of average height and a short nose, wide cheeks, and the elongated brown eyes that often accompany them. I guess she's kind of Asian looking. I saw her lift the grating and I loved her with a love that was deadly and yet not serious. What about this? Less graceful than the woman I have loved most. Mm Mm-hmm. Less Reginald than Thecless. Who is the woman he has loved most? So knowing the end, he could well be talking about Valeria. Um, he yeah. does talk about Valeria later on as the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. Much later. At the very much, end much, of much the... Later. Right, yeah. at the end, yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, but I think that's, that's one option. The other option is one that I think that you'll like a lot because... <laughs> This could be, you know, if we're talking about the first Severian thing, this could be a moment where he's getting memories mixed up. And I'm guessing you would vote for Thea. Yay. For the first Severian um, and his love for her. Yeah, it could well be. Either way, again, it's just a cool moment where so far all we know about is Thecla, right? We only know about her. So to have that less graceful than her I love the most, you assume that's Thecla, but then it turns out no. So. A good moment to just kind of pull you out again and, and remind yourself that, oh, yeah, Severian's writing this from after it's all happened a long time yeah. after. So, right. so yeah, so this paragraph, I can't explain the desire for I, I felt for a love that was deadly and yet not serious. But, you know, a mere what, hour later, a couple hours <laughs> earlier than this? He was no, talking it, it was probably minutes ago that he was, you know, 15, less a half hour ago that he was talking about how sad he was that. About, yeah. about Thecla. Oh, Thecla. Let me go on, because let's not, let's not leave anything off the table. Of course I went to her. I could no more have resisted her than I could have resisted the blind greed of Earth if I had tumbled over a cliff. That's an interesting way to talk about gravity. Mm-hmm. I could no more have resisted her than resisted gravity. I did not know what to say to her, and I was terrified that she would recoil in horror at the sight of my sword and filaging cloak. But she smiled and actually seemed to admire my appearance. After a moment, when I said nothing, she asked what I wanted. So, yeah, strange. Very strange. It's also, once you kind of see what she's doing, um, well, a couple things. So, Severian's still, I think, like a teenager. I still think of him as like 18 or 19 Mm -hmm. at this point. You know, it's lust. Like what he's describing is lust. And in fact, in in the next chapter, he has a little aside where he's like, you hear all, you read all these biographies of people and you wonder why they did things. And I feel like it's basically a joke that he's sort of saying, you know, look, I was young. It was absolute lust that it was, it was plain lust, simple as that. 
that there was nothing deeper. I mean, at this point, it sounds like he could be saying, you know, something about love, but he even says, and yet not serious, right? Like it's, it's something that just is completely in the moment, overwhelming. And he goes with it. I'm not going to say that that's not true. I mean, it could be true, Mm -hmm. but he says, if we take him at his word, I cannot explain the desire I felt for her. Well, Severian does understand lust. <laughs> I mean, it's not like he's, you know, he's never met women before. He'd never been out of the tower. He's been to brothels. So yeah, he's, he understands that sort of desire. And he says, I cannot explain the desire I felt for her. I, I don't know. I think it's odd. This is, it's sort of like Thecla. He's immediately taken by her, but he can't say why. But the thing is, he never even questions why with Thecla. In this case, he seems a bit puzzled Mm -hmm. by his own reaction. Yeah. Well, I have two, I have in my mind two competing theories. And I was going to say, you are not alone. That if you look (laughs) at many people, Asia is, of course, the subject of many theories about conspiracy and about, you know, what's going on and mm-hmm. that they think they were targeting Severian before they even saw him. Because of course we know that Agia and, and Agilis are, are targeting him to at the very least con him out of his sword and his cloak. Right. Yes. But there may be a much bigger con. Exactly. Going on I mean, I get that people will say, you know, probably most people will say, Hey, what's the mystery? It's Severian and she's not ugly. But for me, this attraction that confuses him, combined with the understanding that Severian is constantly being manipulated, inclines me to want to suppose something else is going on. So, all right. So I have have some curiosity to surf this is for this. All right. Curiositas Urthus. Let's do it. All right. The first is that, you know, this is a first Severian theory. And to my mind, understanding that Severian's consciousness is stretched across two timelines, it can explain his instant attraction to both Thecla and Thea. So in that case, the attraction is that first Severian and Agia had a relationship. Severian Caesar, whammo. I do have my doubts about this one. Like I said, the attra- his attraction is different from the way it was with Thecla. And even with Dorcas, Severian feels like his relationship with Agia is more removed. He says to Dorcas about Agia, I don't know her well. And in fact, I don't feel I know her as well as I know you. Well, of course, he feels that way because Dorcas is his grandmother. But that's, I don't know. That's not that. That's even that's far more removed than say a a, a first Severian situation, right? But so, that that actually in um, his short um, appendix in Michael's new book, Michael Andrews in the new book, mm-hmm. he does mention that as one very strong possibility that yes, Agia was the first Severian's love and goes on adventures with him and things like right. that. Yeah. So yeah. So I have a second one. Uh, this is something else. It's actually kind of a, a, an older suspicion that I've had for a long time. And it starts with my sense that there is something not entirely natural about Agia and Agilis's twin relationship. They look a lot alike. They are sister and brother. But when 
Severian goes to visit them in Agilus's cell. He says, their faces were so nearly alike that Agia might have been holding a mirror to her own. And there's also both of their comfort with nudity, as if clothing is something that's a complete afterthought to them. Uh, for example, when Severian visits them again in the cell, they are both naked. I mean, she doesn't even wear clothes to visit her brother. So, and then finally there's, and th this is the, the connecting thread. There's Hathor's comments when he first encounters Severian after Agilus's execution. He says, Master, when I was on the Quasar, I had a paracoita, a doll. A paracoita is a sex doll, as Borsky, I think, noted. Uh, but he identifies it as a character in Earth of the New Sun, and I don't like that. A doll, you see. A genicon, a genicon is a fantasy sexual partner, so beautiful with her great pupils as dark as wells, her irises purple like asters and pansies blooming in the summer. Where is she now, my own scopolanya, <laughs> my poppet? <laughs> a woman whose uh, appearance others find stimulating in the extreme. So, yeah, so a scopolanya is just an extremely sexual, beautiful mm -hmm person uh, a woman and a puppet of course is a puppet <laughs> yeah so borsky had a theory about this uh sex doll that its identity is answered in earth of the new sun and I, like i said i don't like that i think the solutions should be preferred you know from sources near as at hand i think it should be able to figure this one out here in book of the new sun i propose that agia is Hathor's poppet, his paracoita. That Severian's attraction is because she's made to be attractive. In that way, she's like Jalinta will be in another sense. She is like Jaterna, apparently has the ability to do. She's another, she's another item like that. Mm -hmm. It does feel like we're getting a little crowded with those things. But it's it's the methods are different. And I think Agilus is one too. Everyone assumes that Hathor works for Agia, that she gives in to him in order to get revenge on Severian and get him to work for her. I don't think that makes any sense. And I'll make a big deal of it later on where necessary. But I just want to put down a marker now that the situation with Agia and Hathor is similar to that with Baldanders and Talos, mm -hmm. that they are perhaps homunculuses or something like that and Asia works for Hathor. Yeah. And just a couple little things that actually I feel like do kind of lead into that or um, one would be that it still works for why she would be so attached to Agilus partly if nothing else because it's the only other creature like her or the only other thing mm. like her yeah. still around and so that could be one reason for her you know absolute rage that of yeah. course she does <laughs> You know. Well, I always, I always just find it very strange that she is so upset with Severian for having the temerity not to die in their <laughs> scheme, and for you know someone was going to execute Agilus for what he did. So, yeah. I yeah. just, I anyway, I just think she's very yeah. weird. And one other thing that always struck me as very strange was there's a scene in Citadel when Severian sees Agia again when she's working for Vodalus. And when he sees her, she's standing there with her top off and Heather's uh -huh. holding her from behind, like fondling her breast while she's just 
talking in in Vodalus's company. And that yeah. goes beyond the the sort of comfort with nudity thing. That's almost mm. to the point of just almost completely oblivious to it. Right. Which is so strange, I feel like, when you read it the, for the first time. And also, Hathor, it is Hathor, not Asia, who tells Vodalus that Severian, he thinks Severian is the autarch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it those are some things that I used to not really buy into those theories. I thought that Agia and Agilus was were just people. But as I've been rereading all the books this time, certain things she does stand out to me. And also just her logic and, and motivations are so simpler, I guess, like just so straightforward like she just after Agilus is killed she's like no I'm going to kill Severian yeah, and her yeah that's all I will life, do with my life that's right, gonna be single-mindedly only on this um which is so over the top it seems and like something else me. but get this okay that's it's very single-mindedness um you know she's gonna get revenge on Severian but when Severian goes to visit Agilus in his cell all she's thinking about is picking Severian's pocket. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not even at that point, that's not even her, her interest. Yeah. Anyway, it's yeah. Yeah. It's, I agree. She's very strange. And I feel like she's intentionally written in ways that aren't a hundred percent, maybe human. And, and so it makes sense. You know, I, if she was intended to be, you know, a sex slave, then maybe her, her AI just isn't as <laughs> thorough. I don't know. But I mean, that well, would... if she's, if she's really working for, for Hathor, whatever Hathor's motivations are, then it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. So Asia does ask him, you know, what he wants. And he says he wants to buy a mantle, uh, which is like a big, uh, giant cake. She says, are you sure you need one? Uh, her voice was deeper than I had expected. You've such a beautiful cloak now. May I touch it? And that sword, is it an opal? So I take from this, knowing what happens, that she's not even, she's not interested in his cloak. She's interested in his sword, sword. immediately. And mm-hmm. the remarking on her cloak just gives her a chance to, you know, I yes. segue sword into without. the sword. Yeah, exactly. And it also, once you realize, once you see that, I feel like you go back and everything else that she's done seems very calculated. Like the fact mm-hmm. that she's wearing a dress that shows off, you know, just the area right above her butt. And then, <laughs> um, you know, and then she turned around and seemed to admire my appearance. Right. So she turns around and immediately smiles at him. And yeah, everything starts to seem. Calculated. Oh, so do you think that she knows that she knows he's coming? Um, I, uh, whether he's coming, like, does she know who Severian is? I don't know. But at the very least, even if you just think that she's who she says she is, I feel like she and Agilus are already playing the game. It's like they see somebody walking down the street and they're like, okay, let's turn it on now. And let's oh, go see yeah, if we can okay. grab his attention. That kind of thing, at least I feel like is going on. Yeah. Because she, I mean, she immediately moves into the scam, mm-hmm. uh, you know, within minutes she, you know, she sends him away and then goes off and gets into her disguise so yeah she recognizes his sword but this is not the first time that Asia is going to display categorical knowledge on subjects that seem suspicious mm-hmm. for an impoverished rag shop owner right yep. he offers to let her handle his sword but a bump but she says <laughs> no she says but if you want a mantle she points to her shop it's a rag shop just like the title of the chapter, it's filled with articles of worn clothing of every kind, jalabs, 
capotes, smocks, simars. A jalab is a hooded cloak. A capote is a cape with a hood. A simar is a scarf. The door jingles when he enters. I guess there's a bell. Agia stays outside. Severian is disappointed by this. Actually, she, you know, she runs off and gets into disguise. He thinks, no wonder a torture didn't bother her. The guy behind the counter is a corpse left standing <laughs> behind, standing there in fulfillment of the morbid wish of some past owner. There's no point in going over this. Right? You know, we're going to talk about it next time because you know that's the end of the chapter. And. One thing just to mention is that we know, we don't know it here, but it's going to be another mask, of course. And masks have come up a couple times. So you've got, yeah. you know, you have Talos and his mask. Uh-huh. Interesting. Like if we're thinking about the possibility that Agilus is, you know, a, a clone or an artificial something or other, then that would fit because we've got these masks that are on things that are supposed to be living mm-hmm. um, just like Talos was. And here, to have a, it would kind of fit to have a mask of death to be over your thing that's supposed to be living. I don't know, a kind of weird <laughs> uh, <laughs> reverse psychology thing. I don't know. Right. Also, there is a kind of circularity in that Severian started off the chapter again thinking about Thecla's death and sees at the end, you know, an image of death, another corpse mm, behind yeah. him. So he keeps, you know, we do get a little bit of a cycle of Severian keeping coming back to reminders of his situation. Yeah. Well, so with that abrupt ending, we have come to the end of this chapter. And if you've got an idea about Asia, about Talos, about Baldanders and Jolenta. About that dead guy in the street. <laughs> About the dead. Yeah, maybe. The, is that a person that we're supposed to recognize? <laughs> that um, first Severian. It just fine. Yeah. <laughs> if you've got a, a Lambrequin uh, reference, that would be really cool too. Actually, yeah. But you can contact us on the Facebook group. That's the place where most people seem to do so and have conversations the Rereading Wolf podcast Facebook group. You, or you don't want to talk in front of everybody else, you can contact us by email at rereadingwolf at gmail.com. You can also keep up with us on Twitter at Rereading Wolf or on Instagram, Rereading Wolf Podcast. And Instagram is fun because you can see the new things that James has been buying. <laughs> that's that's true. Connected to Wolf or having or being gifted. <laughs> yes, to, yeah, but boy, my family is wonderful. And also, you know, right lately I've been covering the the publications where Wolf first sold his first stories. So that's pretty cool. And also my own establishing my own wish lists. So <laughs> and of course we also have a rereading Wolf podcast subreddit if you want to connect over there. And we're really looking forward to hearing from you. So thank you for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Next time for the challenge. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thanks. Just call me Angel of the morning, Angel. Just touch my cheek before you leave me, baby. Just call me Angel of the morning, Angel. In
It is weird to go back and look at things and be like, I have no recollection about writing. <laughs> you know, I, I reread stuff I wrote and it's if I wrote them just the other day, but there I always, some but, but it's like, but it's just like this dual nature. Wow. That's really good. <laughs> so yeah. I always, I'm never unha- totally unhappy. Even, even with theories that I've rejected, I say that's put together nicely. It's- yeah. And I, I found something, I forget what it was, but it was something that I kept feeling like, okay, I'm working on this idea of something feeling like it was some recent idea. And then I go back and read this thing from like nine years ago and it's like, <laughs> Oh, I already had the idea nine years ago. I'm not really working on it anymore. <laughs> I'm going to have to pause because for some reason my dog is freaking out. <laughs> no problem.